Welcome back to 90 Days New. Today we're going to continue looking at the book of Revelation. And as some of you have continued your reading through our 90 Days New Testament reading plan, you are thoroughly confused by the language that's being used in this book, and that's to be expected. This is not an easy read, um, but as we pointed out in our last episode, there are certain cues in the opening statements that will help you uh, navigate through the book. But today I want to talk more about a hermeneutical grid or hermeneutical lens that um, we need to be aware of as we come to the book. And by hermeneutical lens, I'm talking about the lens we put on for interpretation. And you may be thinking, I don't put on a lens for interpretation. Well, yes, you certainly do. Your lens is really how you see the end or how you see the book of Revelation unfolding. And whatever you expect out of the book when you come to it is kind of what you'll get out of it. And if you say, I come to the book expecting nothing, will you at least expect certain things to transpire in uh, the future? Or you, you do you expect Revelation to be about the future? That's an expectation. Do you expect Revelation to be about now, about later? Or if, if you have no expectation whatsoever, you've never even heard of the book and you're coming to it for the first time, you at least have certain meaning attached to the words that you're hearing expressed. When he mentions Babylon, when he mentions a white horse, when he mentions a seven-headed dragon, you already have some kind of associations with those words or with that language that you bring to the table. So you're not completely unbiased. You have predispositions already deeply seated inside of your subconscious, and you are bringing those to the table when you interpret. And so when we talk about our hermeneutical lens, we are talking about that, the kind of the, the already pre packaged material that you bring with you. It's it's the baggage that you bring into the book. And it could be good baggage, it could be bad baggage, um, but you bring baggage. You always bring something with you, and it starts to inform the way that you think about this book as you read it. Um, another way of saying this, it's more like a an intellectual or a mental contraption that elevates certain material and devalues other material in the book. And once again, you may be thinking, I, I don't devalue scripture or any part of scripture. Well, you don't intentionally devalue it, but some of the words that you read become backdrop information and other words that you read become the focal point of the, the conversation. So when you're putting on a lens, intentionally or unintentionally, it's going to magnify certain themes and certain concepts, and it's going to minimize other language used in the book. As a child, my dad had bought a Volkswagen hatchback. It was a 70s model, and I don't think I'd ever seen one of those prior to him buying one. Uh, but an interesting thing is, I guess my my lens for seeing the world changed after we had acquired one because I started to see them everywhere. We'd be driving down the road and I'd be like, oh, there's a hatchback. Oh, there's another hatchback. Maybe you've done that with a vehicle you've bought and you start to see your vehicle everywhere or, or maybe a name. You didn't ever hear a name before and then you name your child, uh, you know, whatever you name them and suddenly everybody's naming their kid that. Uh, I think I kind of encountered that with that name Macy. I'd never heard Macy before and now I there's just dozens of Macy's everywhere. Um, I remember as a kid, I used to 
seemed to always look up at the clock. There was at least a certain year there where every time I'd look up at the clock, all the numbers would be the same. It would be 1111 or 333 or 222. And I would point that out to my parents and they said, ah, you're just losing your mind. Well, I don't think I was losing my mind, but I was probably looking at the clock at other times of day and just, it did not pop. It did not stick. I just glanced and went on and didn't think about it. I didn't even know I looked at the clock. Uh, but anytime I looked at the clock and all of the numbers were the same because I already had this, you know, this mental construct that told me that that's what I would see when I looked at the clock, then whenever I saw it, it would pop. And it became the, the, like the focal point rather than the backdrop information. And that's sort of what happens in Scripture when we come to Scripture with the lens on. The things that we already think we're going to see or expect to see, they pop. And the things that we don't expect to see, um, they do not. They just fall by the wayside. So let's take a few minutes to look at some of the lenses that have been traditionally put on. And many have clustered uh, together around these particular viewpoints, and that's why they uh, become the predominant theological views for interpreting eschatological literature. But the first one we'll talk about is preterism. Preterism is a viewpoint that really dismisses any of the language in Scripture as being a reference to the end of time, uh, especially the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, and some of these other discourses that we would typically associate with the end time, they say no, preterism, or preterists say no, this is a reference to the fall of the temple in 70 AD. As most of you know, in 70 AD, the Romans came and surrounded the city and laid siege to it. They destroyed it. They tore down every rock, every stone. People were killed. It was a devastating time for the Israelites. And so the preterists say this is what Revelation is describing. It's using graphic imagery. It's calling the uh, Romans Babylon, and the reason they call them Babylon is because the Babylonians were the ones who came in and destroyed the temple the first time, and so it makes a comparison between the uh, current destroyer of the temple and the first destroyer of the temple. In fact, Daniel is writing his book uh, from Babylonian captivity, and much of Revelation is just a quotation of Daniel, and so they say, look, the symmetry here is unparalleled. You can't ignore the fact that these um, writers have some things in common, and the thing that's in common is the destruction of the temple. And in fact, there's a lot of temple language used throughout the book. We see many of the angels that are opening the seals coming from the altar, and we see measuring of the uh, holy place, and we see outer courts, and I mean, just all the language throughout the book is very temple-minded. In fact, one of the churches, if they are faithful, they were promised to be a pillar in the temple of God. So the temple is certainly a focal point, and the preterists have that going for them. Another thing is if you go to Matthew 24, a lot of the, uh, the language used in Matthew 24 is also very similar to some of the expressions in the book of Revelation. But Matthew 24 is pretty certainly a, des a description of the temple's destruction. In fact, Jesus makes the claim that every stone is going to be torn down from this temple, and 
the disciples say, when's this going to happen? And Jesus goes into his discourse. And the things that he describes are supposed to be related to the question at hand, which is about the temple's destruction. And Jesus even goes on to say at the end of that discourse that there were some standing there who would not taste death until these things came to pass. So it's hard to make Matthew 24 completely about the eschaton, about the end of time, since now we're 2,000 years removed from that discourse and the end has still not arrived. However, if what Jesus was talking about was the destruction of the temple, they make sense. And that's why some of the people there would have seen that take place. Um, and so the preterist view has a lot of support behind it um, from Matthew 24 and in other places. And it makes sense in some ways, but maybe not in every way. And so I would just want to challenge you to put on the preterist lens and go through the scripture sometime. Read through it as if you were a preterist, looking for support for the idea that it was about the destruction of the temple and not about uh, the great tribulation that you might already view as happening in the future. Uh, and So we'll stop there and we'll go on to the next one. The next one I would say would be uh, the pre-millennial, pre-tribulation viewpoint. And so this is a viewpoint, a lens that you put on that has you emphasizing anything that has to do with the church being raptured and taken out of the world before this idea of a great tribulation coming. And uh, so kind of the timeline, just briefly, we've got Jesus dying, we have the church age, and then we have a rapture of the church. So the church is going to be taken up out of the world, they're going to disappear, and then we're going to have seven years of tribulation in which an antichrist is going to set up and he's going to kind of rule the roost for a, this period of time and bring great uh, harm to the Jewish nation. And then Jesus is going to come back, he's going to judge, he's going to... Um, start a thousand-year reign on the earth with the saints, and at the end of that, Satan will be released shortly, and then there will be a final judgment that will bring in the eternal state. So that's sort of the timeline if you're not already familiar with these things. And this is kind of what I was raised on, and I think many of you were raised on this viewpoint, and you were raised to put on this lens when you read the Scripture. And that's one of the reasons we keep seeing it there is because we've been trained to see it there. And it also is a part of our pop culture. We have had uh, a Left Behind book series that was very popular, several Left Behind Kids book series that were popular. We've had two major motion pictures uh, that emphasize this viewpoint. And, and so that, those lenses are sort of forced upon us at times if we're not careful. But um, if you go with that lens to the scriptures, you're going to begin seeing that information. There are some who look at Revelation 3.10 and they view that as a description of the resurrection. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And if you have the lenses on, you say, look there. There's an hour of trial coming on the whole world. That's going to be the great tribulation. That's going to be um, some of these terrible things that are going to unfold that we see in the book of Revelation. All these um, plagues that are being poured out, all this disease, this famine, um, this, this uh, hatred, and this violence. And so the people of the church that he's talking to in these opening chapters, they're going to be kept from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Well, that's one way that you can view that. But 
there are other ways that you can view it as well. Uh, in fact, I, I would say that if you put on a different lens, it might encourage you to go see what John says in his gospel. The same writer, John wrote Revelation, and he also wrote the gospel of John. And in chapter 17, verse 15, we see a completely different statement there. It reads, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, the first lens was that he was going to keep them from the trial by taking them out of the world. But then over here, it says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And the word keep here is the same Greek word in both John 17 and in Revelation chapter 3. So he's going to keep them from the hour of trial. He's going to keep them from the evil one, but he is not going to take them out of the world. And so if you have that lens of a pre-millennialist, pre-tribulationist, then you're going to have to find a way to explain that. You're going to have to find a way to reconcile those two passages who are written by the same author. What does he mean that's different? And if you have that lens on and you're committed to that lens, you're going to find a way to explain that. We do this all the time. You know, there are some passages that if you read them just at surface level, they would seem to indicate that you could lose your salvation. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 is one of the passages that is usually brought up indicating that you can lose your salvation. But I already have a hermeneutical lens that is committed to the idea that you cannot lose your salvation. I've seen enough other passages of Scripture that say that you will not lose your salvation. In the book of Philippians, in the book of Romans, there are just passage after passage that indicates that if you're truly born again, you stay born again. You can't be unborn. And when I come to a passage like this in Hebrews 6 that seems to indicate that you can lose your salvation, I have to reconcile that. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. We all do that in different ways. Um, but you just need to be aware if you are pre-trib, pre-millennialist, that there are some passages that you're going to have to deal with that are complex. And, uh, and then you have to be honest with yourself. Are you giving him the uh, proper treatment or are you doing some hermeneutical gymnastics to just keep your lens on and not have to replace it with a different lens? So another lens that you might uh, find yourself exploring, if you've uh, already explored the two that we've talked about, would be the historical premillennialist view. The historical premillennialist view says that the church will indeed go through the Great Tribulation. And they will, while they're going through the Tribulation, God will be with them and will protect them. Um, but they will have to endure that. And, and it's not to say that some of them won't die and some of them won't be um, faced with some terrible circumstances. They certainly might, but God will be with them. It's very similar to the saints uh, in the book of Daniel who have to go through the trials. God is with them through that. Uh, but there are other saints throughout the Old Testament who, though they are faithful, they end up being killed. They end up being persecuted. Jesus himself is the one that we are really trying to mimic and replicate. And he himself was perfect, but yet still endured suffering. And he even said himself that if the world hated him, they would hate us. And so we're going to get similar treatment to what Jesus got. And that's why he tells us to take up our cross. So the historical premillennialist position calls us to suffering. It calls us to uh, the fact that we will indeed go through tribulation. 
And uh, if you have that lens on, when you come to the book of Revelation and you start to read about all the different trials that are going to be poured out on the church, uh, you start to understand that that's talking about us and that we could indeed be the ones going through those uh, circumstances later on. Another lens to consider is the amillennialist lens. It's hard to say, but it is a lens worth reading the Bible through to uh, see if maybe it is the proper way to interpret the book of Revelation. It's the way that I have currently uh, been looking at the scripture, and uh, I have actually been in each camp. I've never been a full-blown preterist before, but I have been a pre-millennialist, pre-tribulationist before. Uh, I have been a historic pre-millennialist before, and uh, I currently hold the all-millennialist position and it's, uh, I think it's the most simple of the bunch because it uh, does not look to attach specific meaning uh, or literal meaning to every single creature, every single figure uh, in the book of Revelation, but rather sees it as symbolically portraying the battle between God's people and uh, the world and how God is sovereign over that battle and how he is using suffering not only to sharpen the people of God, but to bring judgment upon the world. And um, so because of that, I don't have to look for who the Antichrist is. I don't have to try to figure out what the mark of the beast is. Some people thought that the vaccination was the mark of the beast. Some people thought credit cards were the mark of the beast. Whatever comes out next, they'll say, ah, oh, it's the mark of the beast. I don't have to worry about any of that. I'm not looking for blood moons. I'm not looking for uh, red heifers to be born spotless in uh, Israel. I'm not looking for a third temple to be built because I don't believe there's going to be a literal third temple. I believe the temple language described in the book of Revelation is about the church. We are the temple of God. In fact, he told one of the people that if they, if they were faithful, then he would make them a pillar in the temple of God. Well, we're not going to be literal pillars in a literal temple because Revelation tells us in the end there's not even going to be a temple. It says that the Lamb was the temple, and we're united to the Lamb in faith, and so we become a part of the temple by being connected to Jesus, who is the temple. Um, that's what the entire New Testament is about. First uh, Peter two two tells us, or First Peter two, uh, I think it's five or six, right in there, tells us that we are living stones built up into a temple of God, and Paul calls us the temple of God, and we have that because we're on the cornerstone of that temple, Jesus Christ. We're built on that rock, and the Book of Revelation is just blowing that out and showing how we are the temple of God and how we are being oppressed by. Uh, Babylon, just like Babylon was trying to tear down the temple, so is the world trying to tear down God's temple. They're trying to destroy it, but we continuously see God's sovereign hand of protection upon the people. And John declared that he was in tribulation even in chapter 1. He's already in tribulation, and we're in tribulation now. We've been in tribulation since the beginning. Some say, well, what about great tribulation? Well, 50 million Christians shed their blood early on in the church, and we have seen Christians burned at the stake. There are places in the world right now where if you're a Christian, they will take your kid and they will set them in a cage and they will sit there and dehydrate in the hot desert sun in front of you until you recant of your faith. I mean, what kind of tribulation do you expect to surpass that? I mean, obviously, Americans, we are prone to view this as not 
uh, that much of a tribulation, and I understand that. But we're an anomaly in a world that is hostile to Christianity, and it's getting more and more hostile by the moment, even here in our own country. Um, and so I don't think that tribulation has to climax into some seven-year uh, event. In fact, I think the number uh, game that's being used in the book of Revelation, the three and a half years of this and three and a half years of that, Three and a half is just an, a half of seven, and seven is a number of completion. So anything that's three and a half years, it's just symbolically telling us that it's a partial amount of whatever is happening. It's not fulfillment, uh, but if it's something that's seven, then it's full and it's complete. The mark of the beast is 666. I don't think there's literally a number that's going to be put on your head or your forehand. I think that's just symbolic of uh, human sinfulness and the world's way of thinking and the world's way of doing. If you participate in the world's way of thinking and the world's way of doing, then they're going to accept you and they're going to allow you to be a part of their world and a part of their system. But if you reject their system you don't take their way of thinking and their way of acting, then they're not going to let you be a part of their world. You can see this in uh, cake bakers and other place, uh, other employers uh, throughout the uh, United States who have rejected the LGBTQ uh, doctrine that you have to embrace their way of life. And those who didn't, they were refused the ability to buy, sell, or trade, uh, in a sense, you know, symbolically speaking, metaphorically speaking. They were no longer allowed to operate as a business. Now, the Supreme Court has upheld some of those decisions, and they have torn down some of those decisions, but the fact is the world is trying desperately to oppress the Christian way of thinking. Uh, but not only is there a mark of the beast in Revelation, but there's a mark of God, a seal of God on the forehead well, if there's a mark of the devil on the forehead, there's a mark of God on the forehead. And in fact, a lot of what we read in Revelation shows the symmetry between the, uh, the heavenly beings and the devilish beings. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Revelation, we have a devilish trinity as well with there being a beast and with there being an antichrist. And so these are just parallels and symbolic ways, almost poetry in a sense, a way of describing the forces at work right now in the world. And that's how I interpret it. I, I could go on and on and on. I'm using up all our time. But the, the point is you don't have to attach a specific entity to every dragon head that pops out of the water in the amillennialist viewpoint. If you're reading it through that lens, you just view these as a system of ruling and reigning beings on the earth who oppose the Christian church. By interpreting the book of Revelation this way, it also allows every single generation who uses this book, not just our generation, not just the early church generation, but every generation can look at it and they can start to assign names and figures to the biblical material. Uh, so World War II people would have seen Hitler as the fulfillment of some of these uh, prophecies and these predictions, and um, we might come across a greater tyrant later on. Uh, we have our own earthquakes, but they had their earthquakes. We have our own pestilence. We have COVID. And we can say, oh, COVID, fulfillment. Yeah, it is a fulfillment. It's not like the ultimate fulfillment, but it's one of the fulfillments, and so was the Black Plague. Um, there has been 
pestilence and there has been famine and there has been disease. There's been death of various kinds and oppression. Uh, that's all happened since the beginning and it continues to happen today. And so I think the book of Revelation as a whole symbolically ties to um, just the general view of the church in the world and how that how we are being persecuted by the world system because they do not tolerate a Jesus-only mentality. They don't tolerate Jesus as king. The emperors in Rome didn't, and the United States system doesn't, and neither do any of the other systems in the world because our kingdom is a heavenly one. Uh, there's one other view that I would like to cover, but I don't have to do it super fast because we're running out of time, and that's the post-millennial view. Put on the post-millennial lens, and you will view um, the, you'll actually, it's a happy view. It's a view that Christianity will spread to the ends of the earth and that the new heaven and new earth will be ushered in through evangelism. And uh, so there are many passages that talk about um, the gospel going to every creature and every knee bowing to Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a lot of reasons to maybe believe in this. Um, but what I'm just challenging you to do with this podcast today is to try some of these other lenses on and really try to view the world from that angle or the not the world but the word from that angle because when we do this not only does it allow us to see things that were in our blind spot but it also gives us uh, some empathy for the opposing side and really we're not opposing sides we're all on the same side the side of Jesus Christ if we believe that Jesus is coming again we believe that he came in the flesh that he died for us we're on the same side here but I don't think it's unimportant that you come to a conclusion on what you believe in these matters. In fact, it will have implications beyond just when Jesus is coming back. It has implications for how you live your life now. And each viewpoint will emphasize certain characteristics of the Christian life now. And so get to the bottom of it, study it, but make sure you do your due diligence. Don't just wear the lens that's been handed to you. That's what we're guilty of so often is we were handed the lens and we put it on. We never want to take it off because that would be inconvenient and it would be humiliating to say, oh, I got this wrong for all these years. I've, I've gotten it wrong multiple times now. Like I said, I've already switched my lens three times and I might switch it again down the road if I come to the conclusion that all millennialism is not the ticket. And so do your, do your work, do your study and try to view it through the lens of the preterist. Try to view it through the lens of the pre-mill, pre-trib uh, viewpoint. Try to read back through Revelation a third time with the viewpoint of the historic premillennialist. Try to read back through it as an amillennialist and try to read back through it as a post-millennialist and say millennialist five times fast. See if you can do that. And if you can, I'll see you next time on 90 Days New.